0: 2020 was a watershed year for Israel's relations with its Arab neighbors. In that year, four Arab nations, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, normalized relations with Israel after decades of boycotting Israel diplomatically. These ties became known as the Abraham Accords, named after the biblical figure who was claimed by both religions, fathers of a Jewish Isaac and ultimately a Muslim Ishmael. Broader forces brought these countries together, ranging from the enmity these Arab states faced with Iran and the need to assert stability of pro-Western governments at a time that questions arise about Washington's long-term commitment to the Middle East. Others view Israeli technology as helpful to their own societal needs. In other words, some Arab leaders see Israel as a part of a solution and are not encumbered by the enmity of the past. What would it take to deepen and broaden these relationships? How does the Palestinian issue play into this as the Middle East undergoes change? What can the U.S. do to strengthen the Abraham Accords? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we are exploring a series of policy dilemmas facing Israel. Tough calls that require courageous leadership and creative thinking. My name is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow, and director of the Koret Project on Arab-Israel relations at the Washington Institute. And I'm excited to go on this journey examining Israel's tough policy decisions with you. (music) Having fought wars with Arab states on different fronts in 1948, 1967, and 1973, and other conflicts with Arab states in 1956 and 1982, it's not surprising that people thought the enmity between Arab states and Israel would last forever. In 1967, following what became known as the Six-Day War, the Arab League issued its Khartoum Declaration. No negotiations with Israel. No recognition of Israel. No peace with Israel. This became known as the Three No's. Yet now Sudan, that hosted that very 1967 conference, is now normalizing ties with Israel. By the late 1970s, the sands of the Middle East had shifted, as Egypt sought to rid itself of Soviet influence and move into the American sphere. Realizing that peace with Israel would help accomplish this goal, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat announced his intention to pursue peace, quote, even to Jerusalem, end quote. Sadat was invited to speak at Israel's parliament. The Knesset in Jerusalem and in historic fashion became the first Arab head of state to do so. And
1: so, to a turning point in the Middle East, Sadat's presidential jet arrives, saluted by Israeli flags. As the Jewish nation watched on television, the same pictures were relayed by satellite to viewers all over
0: the world. In 1979... Israel and Egypt signed the Camp David Accords, in which Egypt recognized Israel in exchange for the Sinai Peninsula, which Israel had conquered in 1967.
1: To achieve an agreement which will make it possible to continue our negotiations with the view to establishing a just and lasting peace in the Middle East and bring an end to war and bloodshed.
0: The next country to normalize relations with Israel was Jordan in 1994. When the agreement was reached, Israel had been in a state of war with Jordan for almost a half a century. It took a subsequent 26 years for Israel to normalize relations with another Arab state. What Egypt and Jordan had in common with each other, as old normalizers, if you will, is that these agreements were about peace between governments. They focused security. What is striking about these treaties is how they dealt with maps between countries that fought each other on the battlefield. Moreover, it is striking that the vanguard of the peaceful relations between Egypt, Jordan, and Israel are precisely the very militaries that fought each other in the past, but now they're working together against ISIS and other destabilizing forces in the Middle East. What the new normalizers with Israel have in common is that none of them faced Israel on the battlefield. Yet they consistently voted against Israel at the UN, and they favored the Arab economic boycott for decades. However, the fact that they never fought each other has enabled them to put their normalization agreements in the context of economic cooperation, in a future-oriented peace between peoples, not just between governments like with Egypt and Jordan, amid a fortunate alignment of interests. Particularly the UAE and Bahrain saw an Israel an ally against their common enemy, Iran, Both sides saw huge economic opportunities for joint projects and finance and high-tech. 140,000 Israelis visited Dubai even during the COVID pandemic, amid belief that the potential of tourism is high, just as Israel announced direct flights to Morocco in the summer of 2021. The cooperation is not just limited to tourism. Morocco and Israel agreed to a cybersecurity agreement in the summer of 2021. UAE Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed signaled the desire to invest $10 billion in Israeli high tech. Emiratis and Israelis are also negotiating deals when it comes to artificial intelligence. The Saudis were not one of the countries that normalized, but they made some key moves that made it possible. Bahraini officials privately say that it was high-level Saudis that gave the green light to Bahrain to normalize relations with Israel. They also approved overflights, so Emirati and Israeli flights to each other would take a fraction of the time that they would take if they needed to fly all the way around the kingdom. A Saudi spokesman made clear that the countries who normalized ties with Israel acted out of honorable motives, even if Riyadh was not one of the normalizers itself. The essence of the four deals were negotiated by the Trump and Netanyahu governments, yet each deal was possible, because the Arab states won some dramatic bilateral concessions from Washington, including advanced aircraft like the F-35 for the Emirates or the coveted Western Sahara for Morocco. Moreover, the Netanyahu government made a key concession of holding off on West Bank annexation for many years to come. The Palestinian issue remains a complication. It's very important to say that none of the four Arab countries rescinded their own signature as a result of the May 2021 clash with Gaza, demonstrating the resilience of these agreements. At the same time, clashes with Israeli forces at the Temple Mount slash Haram al-Sharif touched a chord with Muslim people across the Middle East that governments could not ignore. It is a reminder of the huge religious resonance of a very sensitive issue that could complicate these ties in the future. What are the potential and limits of these new ties? What can and what should the Biden administration do to deepen these ties? And what about the big prize of normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia? And how is it related to U.S.-Saudi relations or Israeli-Palestinian relations? How far can these new relations go? To answer these questions, we are excited to be joined by three Middle East experts, Ebtisam al in Abu Dhabi, Amos Yadlin outside of Jerusalem, and Tom Friedman in Washington. Ebtisam al is a founder and president of the Emirates Policy Center and the first Arab woman to head a think tank. Additionally, she's a professor of political science at the United Arab Emirates University and a member of the Consultative Commission of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Amos Yavin served as the head of the Institute for National Security Studies, INSS, at Tel Aviv University. Amos served in the Israel Defense Forces for 40 years eight of which he was a member of the IDF general staff. From 2006 to 2010, General Yadlin served as the IDF's chief of military intelligence. Thomas Friedman is an internationally renowned author, reporter, and foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times. He's a recipient of three Pulitzer Prizes, two for international reporting from the Middle East, and a third for his columns written about 9-11. He's the author of seven New York Times bestsellers, I want to thank all three of you for joining us today.
2: Thank you, David. Great to be with
0: you.
3: Thank you, David, for having me.
0: It's a pleasure, David, to be with you, with Tom and Iftesam, all of you. Three good friends and distinguished experts on the Middle East. Tom, why don't
2: I start with you? How much do the Abraham Accords change the Middle East now? I say a couple of things. One is the reason I supported the Abraham Accords unabashedly and enthusiastically is. First, because the more the Middle East looks and behaves and operates like the European Union and the less it operates and looks like the Syrian civil war, I think that's a good thing, number one. Number two, I think that to the extent that the Arab Gulf states can be a bridge between Israelis and Palestinians to help forge a solution, um, whatever that solution is, I think there'll be a net positive. Their, their basic impulses are good, and, and um, uh, I think that will be a, a net positive. Third, I have a, a, just kind of a personal take on this, David. I've I've always felt that the the tension, the conflict, the stress between Jews and Muslims um, uh, over the last century, which is a a direct byproduct of the Jewish people's desire to return to their uh, ancient homeland and uh, Palestinian uh, resistance to that, I always felt it was inorganic, not organic. I've always believed that if uh, all Jews had lived in Arab-Muslim countries, albeit even as second-class citizens for centuries, there'd be 6 million more Jews alive today. And I I see in the Abraham Accords, um, especially coming from Morocco, UAE, the possibility to begin reversing something that I believe is inorganic, this tension between Muslims and Jews, and uh, restore it to some balance. I do believe it will still require some kind of resolution of the Palestinian conflict. I think it's naïve. Um, uh, and wrong to think that it can be done without that. It's too deeply embedded in the culture, philosophy, and history of the region and identity of the Arab-Muslim world. But I do believe that the Abraham Accords, which have a different character than the Egypt-Israel peace and the Jordanian-Israel peace, have the possibility to begin to reverse that Arab-Muslim tension and take something that was inorganic and return it to its more organic state. Ebtissam, over to you in Abu Dhabi. How do you see the potential
0: for enhancing regional cooperation of all sorts as a result of the accords? How optimistic are you? Uh,
3: First, I would say uh, it is a game changer. I was always saying it is a game changer. It's different than that between Jordan and and Egypt. It is, uh, I would say, warm peace. It was opening the window. That's why we saw Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco join that. And Saudi was uh, in the way. I think what happened in Sheikh Jarrah and Gaza war, this affected the normalization process. Okay, The Saudi, they stepped back. The whole Arab region also, because of the Gaza war and what happened, were under the pre- pressure of the public Uh, opinion. Now, this does not mean that there is no future for normalization, but it takes two to dance the tango, uh, David. There are spoilers from both sides, Palestinian side and the extremes in the Israeli, and those are, they were, Hamas was the the spoiler at that time. So if we can control that, there is a huge opportunities in the region, uh, both Israeli and and the Emirati, they are the the basic pillars for the Abraham Accord, and they can take it further from there.
0: Amos, sitting in Israel, what is your sense of the optimism about the importance of the Abraham Accords for the Middle East and the prospects for cooperation between Israelis and Arabs? No doubt that this
1: is a game changer. It's an important move. The chance for a warm peace, peace which is people to people, not only among leaders. Peace that contribute uh, to the economy, to the society, to the future of both nations is very, very important. Second, uh, we have a common enemy. And the enemy is more concerned when Israel and the Arabs are joining together. Last but not least, it's taking the veto from the Palestinians on the relations between uh, Israel and the Arab countries. Not anymore the Palestinians will stop, uh, by the way, according to the Arab Peace Initiative, any relation between Israel, any normalization between Israel and the Arabs. After saying that, I'm still thinking that we have to honor and to give all the credit to people who have done it 40 years ago and 25 years ago. Uh, President Sadat, he really changed the Middle East. He started the peace with Israel instead of wars. And King Hussein have done it 25 years ago. But they
0: haven't bring the people on board. And this is what the uh, Abrahamic Accord is doing. Almost, I'm glad you agree that there's a distinction between peace between governments and peace between people. Even if you look at the treaties, you'll see how much of it is about the old chapter of Arabs and Israelis and the wars, the lines, the restricted zones, where the military can and can't go. All of this is absent in the Abraham Accords because they don't share a border. They never fought each other, and therefore it could be much more about a new chapter, a peace between peoples. I sometimes think, and Tom, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, that if Shimon Paris was alive today, uh, that this was very much the peace he would have envisioned, a peace between peoples. Shimon Peres, of course, for our listeners, was Israel's leading statesman. The agreements with Egypt and Jordan are strategic agreements, which I don't diminish for for an iota. Because of these agreements, there have been no interstate wars. But I see peace between peoples as a different phenomenon, where there could be economic and technological cooperation, I don't know if you feel this is a fair distinction, Tom.
2: Well, I think it's a fair distinction. It's, it's a very important distinction, and it, it comes at a very important time. You know, before we um, began our little podcast here, uh, Amos was saying that he couldn't turn off the air conditioning his house because it's 100 degrees. Um, we're on the verge of a whole set of problems, David, in the world at large and the, in, the, in the Middle East um, in particular that only have ecosystem solutions. Um, there is no unilateral solution. Uh, climate change is one, but also poverty um, uh, and uh, state collapse is another. Israel is surrounded now by states that are collapsing. Um, Lebanon, I'm um, a country I, I, I know and, and, and really love dearly. Yemen, Libya, uh, Syria, Iraq. The, these countries are literally falling apart. I believe we're on the verge of an epidemic of state collapse. And therefore, the zones of order and the nations of order and the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco are, are certainly uh, um, among them, the most important, need to be collaborating to produce order in the region. So to me, the Abraham Accords not only you know, came about at exactly the right time, but I don't think it's an accident that they came about at this time, that it's the forces of order that are producing this. It's a lot about Iran, but it's not only about Iran. Ebti I'm going to ask you a bit of a sensitive question.
0: The Emirates is right there. Across from the Straits of Hormuz is Iran. And we've gotten signals that the Emiratis don't like to hear the terms publicly that the Accords are uniting countries against Iran. Do you feel there's a kind of Emirati-Iranian understanding that goes like this? If you Emiratis want to normalize with Israel, that's up to you. That's not our business. But Iran is concerned if there's a security dimension to this.
3: I think that was the first uh, conference we had it on the Abraham Accord with INSS. And at that time, the Iranian, I said, felt sorry that they uh, missed this chance to bring the Arabs to them and they let, let them go to Israel. In their uh, inner circle, they are discussing, we missed the opportunity. We let the Arab and the the Gulfists go to the Israeli. When it's for their interest, they will cooperate with the Israeli. Okay? And their concern, yes, the security, and they can uh, endanger our security or even the the, the region. I think that the latest incidents in in, uh, the the, the Arab Sea, uh, they will continue this. I I would say they will not stop. They will continue. But... Always, also their interest with UAE is more. They will calculate it, but they will be also as they did with Aramco. there will be sometime miscalculation when they will cross the red lines. This is will depends if there is if they will feel that there is Israeli soldiers uh, on the on the UAE shores. That might be caused that. But there is thinking in, in Iran. you know that. How can we be part of that uh, arc of stability? How can we benefit from that? You have two two camps in, uh, in Iran, those whom they are pragmatic and those whom they are fanatic.
0: Amos, to pick up on what Ebtasam just said, you're one of Israel's leading experts focusing on Iran. How do you think the Iranians view the accords? Do you think they draw the distinction between normalization and security cooperation on their border? They really hate the Abrahamic Accord. They
1: hate it politically, they hate it ideologically, and they have some concern on security. I think uh, the defense issue is not an issue yet. Israel and Iran are in a shadow war everywhere. Everywhere in Syria, in Lebanon, in Gaza in the Mediterranean, in Iraq, in Iran, in the Gulf of Oman. It is still under the threshold of full-scale war. None of us, neither the Iranians nor the Israelis, want to go to a full-scale war. But there is a shadow war here. And we will try to keep the UAE off this war. We don't want them to involve in this war. We have enough fronts. If the UAE will ask for something, mostly a defensive uh, system, if they will ask for the Iron Dome because they're afraid of Iranian missiles, we will be happy to help. We don't need them as a, a bridge to Iran. We know how to reach Iran,
0: not from the UAE. We want them to be safe from Iran. Tom, over to you. The Palestinians were mentioned earlier they don't love the Abraham Accords at all. Some people who are critics want to say the Abraham Accords are a bypass road around the Palestinians. But there are others of us, and I've written about this, and I know you have, who say that this could be a bridge. Instead of thinking about how this hurts the Palestinian leverage, you could draw the support of the Gulf states to help the Palestinians. With a new Israeli government that says it wants to shrink the conflict. Of course, this is not The end, but the question is is it a beginning? Could it be a start after a long period of stagnation of the last decade? How do you see the Abraham Accords as a bridge and not as a bypass road?
2: Well, David, I'd say a couple things. One is that um, I kind of have a a Jewish response to that question and a a kind of Middle East strategic response. Uh, Anything, and if I were to be critical of the UAE on any issue, UAE and Bahrain, i think they're too diffident actually about supporting a two state solution i think they're they're wary of getting involved and actually they um, i don't say that they're um uh, I, I don't mean this in any insulting way but they actually don't have a deep textural feel for the politics of the west bank gaza a- and israel um and uh and i wish they had more of it because i think they have something very important to contribute and that is to reinforce the Saudi peace initiative or the Arab peace initiative. The Jewish side of that answer, and there'll be a Jewish side of that answer and the Palestinian side of that answer. I believe the two-state solution today, keeping alive the two-state solution, that's all I'm looking for. There there is no two-state solution in our near future. But keeping it alive is more important than ever. If you stand back and watch what happened here uh, in the United States during the Gaza War, To me, the message, David, is loud and clear. If there is no two-state solution, if there's only a one-state solution, it will blow up every Jewish institution, every synagogue, every Jewish community, and every Hillel house on every American college campus. Because the question on the table will be, are you with a one-state Israel, the so-called apartheid Israel, or are you with a two-state Israel? And that will blow up every Jewish institution in America, and I believe around the world. And I think we should not underestimate that. So my goal right now is to keep the two-state solution alive, just as a potential. Um, It's not around the corner at all, but I want to keep it alive. And I believe that the Gulf states have a huge um, role uh, to play in keeping it alive, which is their interest as well, uh, by simply supporting... The, uh, the, the Saudi Peace Initiative or the Arab Peace Initiative, whatever one wants to call it. And I think they need to be very clear about that. Uh, if I were the Gulf uh, Arab states right now, the four new uh, participants in the uh, Israel Arab peace, I would open my embassy to Israel in West Jerusalem. I would open my embassy in Israel in West Jerusalem, not Tel Aviv. But I would open an embassy to the Palestinian state in Ramallah at the same time. I think that would be very hard for Israelis to oppose, and I think it symbolically would be very, very important to say we see the Palestinian Authority as a proto-state, the size of which will have to be negotiated with Israel. We see Israel, we recognize Israel as a Jewish state, its capital is in Jerusalem, and if I were them, I would move my embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and they open an embassy to Palestinians in Ramallah. And I think that is one of the greatest things they could contribute right now to restore, reinforce, and preserve the possibility of a two-state solution. At the same time, I'm hoping, I'm praying that this frail Israeli government, and it is frail, and I realize it cannot do much, but if it can do nothing other than um, improve the lives of Palestinians, make real, put meat on the bone of Natali Bennett's uh, uh, ideas about real autonomy, and at the same time, preserve and maybe initiate some process of unilateral Israeli separation, because Israel has agency, and I think we some I think that's been lost and forgotten in the last uh, 12 years of Bibi Netanyahu. Israel has agency to begin a process of separation, and Amos has written about this, and INSs has written about this. Right now, I have one priority, David preserve the two-state solution, and anything that Israel, INSS, Ibtisam, the UAE, the um, Washington Institute, the United States government, the Arab governments can do to preserve the possibility of a two-state solution is my number one priority, because without it, it will be a disaster for Israel, the Middle East, and the Jewish people. Amos, how do
0: you respond to what you just heard from Tom? I uh, identified with part of it,
1: but not with all of it. And I don't think this is the subject today. I do agree that the UAE is a leverage to move forward to the right direction. And even if I look at it from the government of Israel perspective, in the past, when Israel and Palestine were in a clash, first Intifada, second Intifada, immediately, immediately we paid a price in our relation with uh, Egypt and Jordan. Today, it is not only two Arab countries. It's six Arab countries that we have to consider what we are going to lose in case of uh, another uh, intifada or another uh, round in, uh, in Gaza. I have to say that the UAE played an important role in the, in the last Gaza mini-war, and it's a, it's a test to the strong relation between both of us. They haven't called the ambassador. On the contrary, they send it to Israel right after the, uh, the 10 days of fighting. But they can really push both sides to renew the peace process, or what I call, and agree uh, with Tom, to keep the two-state solution alive. This is the goal now. We cannot uh, go all the way to permanent agreement, not with Abu Mazen on his way out, not with Hamas, a terror state on our border, but we should keep all the option
0: open to a future generation and future leader. Okay. So now I just want to talk to you three about the Biden administration and what can it do to both deepen Ties with existing normalizers and broaden the Abraham Accords with new countries. Most notably, everyone's been focused on Saudi Arabia. What do you think is realistic for the Biden administration? Tom, I'll start with you since you're in Washington. What do you think the administration can do and maybe also relate to the template of the Emiratis? Yes, they got annexation off the table from Israel for years, and they got F 35s, they got Reaper drones. This idea of an Arab-U.S. bilateral trade-off. You could say this isn't new, as Egypt and Jordan also had military sales after peace agreements. What do you think is realistic in both regards?
2: Well, David, it's a good question. I think there are a lot of cross-currents, and you touched on many of them in your question. You know, One thing I always find slightly amusing is uh, people on the left who criticize the Abraham Accords by saying it was just an arms deal, to which I say, no. No. You mean there were arms involved? Oh my God. Have you ever heard of F-16s in the Israel-Jordan piece? Not to mention $3 billion a year to Egypt for God knows how long. Guess what? In the Middle East, you get the big players to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. That's how you get big change. If you wait for everyone to do the right thing for the right reasons, you wait forever. Now, uh, there's there's some cultural things, David, which you're aware of, Um, uh, that a lot of the Biden foreign policy people are Obama foreign policy people. And I'll put this bluntly. They didn't like the Gulfies. They didn't like the UAE. They didn't like Saudi Arabia. They didn't like the Gulfies. They felt they were too involved in our politics and that they wanted to drag us into a war with Iran. I'm not going to comment on the veracity of that. I'm just telling you that that was the cultural posture of the Obama administration toward the Gulf Arabs. And you know the Obama administration saw the JCPOA as solving America's problem. America's problem was we didn't want a nuclear Iran for 15 years because we thought it would destroy the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That was our interest. That's how they saw it. Taking down the Iranian regime, uh, destroying the Iranian nuclear program, they saw as um, not an American interest right now, but as an Israeli interest. And they saw the Gulf states as handmaidens in promoting that interest in washington i 'm being very blunt here, but I think you'll agree that is the attitude now I think the most important thing to know at the macro level about the biden administration you know, you could watch what happened during the Hamas war and think, oh my God you know the Democratic left Ilhan Omar and the squad are now in charge of of American foreign policy in the Middle East that would be a complete misreading it, it, it's misreading the signal for the noise we want out of the Middle East now that That attitude, that posture, coupled with the sort of resentment and suspicion of the Gulf Arabs, is in this mix now. And what the Biden people have to sort out is, to what extent do we want to own the Abraham Accords and vault them forward? To what extent, and the only way to really vault them forward is to bring Saudi Arabia into them and to use the leverage of Saudi Arabia. But they're not even talking to MBS, and they really don't like the Saudis either. So I think there's a lot of mixed feelings and cross currents here that, quite honestly, David, they haven't sorted out. Now, my view is get over it, be big boys. We have a fundamental American interest in widening and strengthening the Abraham Accords, in bringing Saudi Arabia into the Israeli-Palestinian peace equation and using that leverage to advance it. That I think is the real signal in the noise on that issue. That's our interest. But um, I would tell you, these are people who have an allergy to being involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, They felt they were burned during the Obama years. They don't like a lot of these people culturally. And um, uh, they don't like the idea of building on something that Trump and, oh, my God, Jared Kushner built. And so they're going to have to sort out all of these mixed feelings. Etisam, what do you think about what
0: Tom just said about the Biden administration, broadening the cords? And if you think Saudi Arabia could join as well?
3: Well, here, are we uh, talking about United States interests or Biden uh, administration interests or Obama's interests? we are talking about us interest definitely you should support the abraham accord okay you are leaving the region okay and uh, this is the only way to stabilize the region having that agreement okay encouraging the rest uh, of the arab world to be part of it and they have a leverage on the saudi okay now the saudi they need them They don't want, I I think they are still under the, they want to get rid of everything Trump did. This is the, maybe this is the only thing good Trump did. (laughs) And I think this is now, this is an interest of United States. You have two regional powers. Now you need also to uh, uh, embolden the Israeli, embolden the the Emirati. I think that this is the only chance. And we need all of us to cooperate, to make it successful. And I want here also to to mention something uh, regarding the two-state solution. Okay, Now, the Saudi, they're saying that they are not joining the Abraham Accord because it did not mention the two-state solution. Okay, one. Well, this is the only way, which I, I agree with with, uh, with Thomas. UAE hasn't a leverage in that because Israel also at that time, they gave the leverage for the Qatari to deal with the, w- with Hamas. The, the uh, Palestinian Authority deals with Saudi. So there was no room for UAE and the Palestinian Authority that wants money. Okay, that money comes from Doha, either from, to Hamas or to Abbas. And they want to take their money and to, to deal with it with their own way, which UAE asking that we will build the schools, build the hospitals, we will take care of it. For Biden administration, this is a unique opportunity for them to fix the Middle East, to fix the Middle East. And we know that the Iraq war, how? The bad impact left on the whole uh, region in terms of letting Iran control the region from Iraq. This is if they won't really. And and I think maybe they are biased against the Gulf, and they are more leaning towards Iran because of GCPOA, or thinking that Iran, the regional power, they can depend on to and, and handle the region.
0: Before I go to you, Amos, for the final word, I just want to be clear, Abdesam, that I heard from you correctly. You said that America is leaving the Middle East. Is this a subtext for the Abraham Accords? that it's a hedge of a pro-American, moderate, pragmatic countries who want a region of order and prosperity that is a way hedging against complete American withdrawal or retrenchment or reduction of forces? Is this the conventional wisdom, in your view, in Abu Dhabi, Abdusam?
3: The only two uh, uh, countries and powers in the Middle East whom they are wise and, and strategicalized uh, United States can delegate the its responsibility is Israel and UAE, okay? No others. And I think if they there is a thinking of that dealing with Iran and Iran can stop the Chinese expansion in the region, this is something I think a big mistake in the American thinking. If they think that by GCP UAE, that they will bring stability in the region, they don't understand Iran, they don't understand the IRGC or
0: the Almost a uh, final word. You heard something very powerful from Ebtislam just now about looking at Israel and the UAE as these two countries that can make a difference as a moderating access in the region. You heard from Tom a very big picture view of where the Biden administration is at. How do you see the administration? How can it deepen and broaden the accords? And how much is Saudi Arabia going to be part of that? Yeah, let's first go
1: back to history the most important processes between Israeli and Arabs were done without the Americans. Uh, 1977, Sadat and Begin uh, haven't gone to Geneva. They went to Morocco and they found each other without the Americans. So was the Oslo process. Without uh, an Israeli and Palestinian delegation in Washington, but the real process was done without the Americans. So that gives us an opportunity maybe to think on uh, doing a bilateral effort that not necessarily need uh, the Biden administration. However, the Abrahamic Accord was done with highly uh, American uh, involvement. Uh, I called it uh, a trio accord because the Americans put a lot of input into the process and into the result. Of the, of the process as they gave F-35 to, to the UAE. They gave Sudan uh, financial uh, benefits and they took them from the uh, terror list. They gave Morocco uh, legitimacy on uh, Western Sahara. Uh, they were very much involved and my recommendation to the Biden administration, when the one year of A, B, T, anything but one, they should reconsider. Should reconsider because leaving and disengaging from the Middle East will not make the Middle East uh, indifferent to the U.S. Uh, Maybe they are not interested in the Middle East, but the Middle East may be interested in them, as we saw on September 11. So I think uh, what they can achieve is an alliance of the arabs the israelis taking uh, israel moved from ucom to centcom it's a huge opportunity to create centcom as a middle eastern nato this is something uh, that they have to to consider vis-a-vis the iranian threat because even if they will go back to the jcpoa i hope they will not do the mistake of not acting against Iran subversion, terror, human rights violation all over the Middle East. I think the Saudis is a key. At that moment, all they are doing, I guess, is counting the years to 2024. We don't have this time. And I highly recommend to uh, start a process that maybe will not get the sponsorship of the United States, we can start again with issues that are more easy to digest. Saudi Arabia is uh, attacked every week by Iranian missiles, cruise missiles, UAVs. I really don't understand why the Iron Dawn, which produced together by Israel and the US, will not be stationed in Saudi Arabia to protect the people of Saudi Arabia from running to the shelter uh, every now and then. And then create more trust on a legitimate defensive goals that can bring uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia together. Last but not least, the Saudis are waiting to get more than what the UAE already got. Uh, the UAE was the, the force behind the cancellation of the uh, annexation which is very, very important to the Arab world, to the UAE, to the Saudis. But they want more. And the question is not what uh, you ask me, what uh, realistic to accept from Biden. And I'm asking what realistic to accept from Bennett. Can he uh, support Tom Friedman's desire for two-state solution and declare it in the Knesset? I'm not sure this is something he can deliver. So we have to be much more realistic on the fact that in Israel, there is a government that agree almost on everything but the Israeli-Palestinian issue.
0: It's been such a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation. We could do a podcast on every point you each raise. You have brought clarity to some of the big issues ahead, and I'm sure we're going to revisit them in the future. I want to thank each and all three of you for participating today in Decision Points.
1: It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Dave.
0: Thank you. We are doing this podcast as we come up on the one-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords. It's important that we just heard from three noted Middle East analysts, joining us from three different capitals, And all agreeing on the same idea, Arab-Israel normalization is important to the Middle East. The motives for why it happened may be multiple, ranging from concern about Iran's role in the region, concern about America's retrenchment from the Middle East, and the need for security assistance at a time of uncertainty. But they all agreed on its significance. They all saw this as a game-changer. Now the question is, how to build upon this breakthrough? How do you both use the Abraham Accords to deepen existing ties among these countries and broaden them to other countries in the region? Such moves could simultaneously end Israeli-Palestinian stagnation by being a bridge, and they could send a signal that America's allies can join hands in the Middle East against destabilizing forces. Normalization between Israel and the Arab states including among those who never fought each other on the battlefield and don't carry the baggage of the past, could send an important signal that peace is not just between governments, but it is between peoples who want to chart a better future for Arabs and Israelis alike. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you join us for all of Season 3. Please go to your favorite podcast app to rate, review, and subscribe to Decision Points. And tell your friends. I also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron and Lindsey Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.